Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for December 24th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The January 6th committee releases its final report. At least three people are killed at a Paris shooting. The U.S. dismisses Putin's claim he wants to end the war. M23 rebels pledge to retreat from a key position in the DR Congo. Chile announces plans to open an embassy in the Palestinian territories. Shell agrees to pay $15 million for oil spills in Nigeria. FTX's Bankman Freed is released on $250 million bond. Meta settles a Cambridge Analytical scandal case for $725 million. ByteDance confirms TikTok accessed journalists' data. And molnupiravir antiviral treatment is found to hasten COVID recovery. In our top story, the January 6th committee releases a final report. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, CNN, and New York Times. Released Thursday, the U.S. House January 6th Committee's 845-page final report, which begins with a chapter titled, quote, The Big Lie, referenced Donald Trump's controversial claims that the 2020 election was stolen, focuses on the former president's alleged role in the Capitol riots. The report added new details regarding Trump's campaign efforts to allegedly appoint fake electors in key states, arguing that they were planning to deploy them whether Trump won certain states or not. The campaign claims they were put in place as a contingency in case states changed course and declared him the winner by the December 14, 2021 deadline. It also claimed that the architect of the alleged fake elector plot was outside legal advisor to the Trump campaign, Kenneth Chesbro. The committee wrote that he sent a memo to then-Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani referencing the president of the Senate strategy which reportedly falsely stated that Vice President Mike Pence could pick which electors to count during the January 6th joint session of Congress. The committee concluded that the Capitol riots should be labeled a domestic terrorist attack upon the United States Capitol complex, casting blame squarely on Trump for allegedly summoning the rioters to the building that day. In addition to referring Trump to the Department of Justice for criminal prosecution, the report included a recommendation to bar individuals identified in the report from ever seeking federal or state office again, citing the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists. The report was based on over 1,000 interviews and a collection of emails, texts, and phone records over 18 months. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. On this show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin, and as you can imagine for this story, there are several narrative spins. Our first is a pro-Trump narrative, and it's provided by InfoWars. Democrats staged two baseless impeachment attempts while Trump was in office, and now they're trying to change the Constitution so that he and his supporters can't even campaign in the first place. What happened at the Capitol was a large, rowdy crowd with little security to quell violent outbursts, something we now know could have been prevented if Nancy Pelosi hadn't denied Trump's request to deploy the National Guard. And the Huffington Post is giving us a Democratic narrative for this story. Though much of this report reiterated previously released information, the details provided put the final nail in the coffin for Trump 
and his election-denying coalition. Capital authorities refused to deploy National Guard troops out of fear that Trump would use them to conduct a coup, which could very well have happened given the evidence of treasonous activity shown throughout these 800 pages. And the Democratic narrative is followed up by a Republican narrative provided by Spectator. January 6th may have been disgraceful, but inflation is soaring, working Americans are struggling, and the U.S. is stumbling into diplomatic crisis around the world. Meanwhile, Democrats continue to conduct political theater to try and distract from the enormous challenges faced by the nation. All this really does is highlight the hypocrisy of the left, who, in the case of BLM, not only failed to condemn but even encouraged violence, allowing protesters to get away with murder in the name of justice. And lastly, we have a nerd narrative being provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 36% chance that any U.S. court will rule that Donald J. Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th, 2025. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Our next story comes out of Paris, where an attack on a Kurdish center has killed three. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian. BBC News, Al Jazeera, and CNN. At least three people were killed and another three injured in a shooting at a Kurdish cultural center in Paris on Friday, an attack that French authorities are calling racially motivated. The shooting took place on Rue d'Angan, a popular shopping street, in the 10th district of Paris at a Kurdish community center, a restaurant, and a hair salon. The suspect, a 69-year-old former train driver identified by local media as William M. was detained without resistance. Authorities say he had recently been released from detention while awaiting trial over an attack at a migrant camp in Paris in 2021. According to French Interior Minister Gérard Demanon, police in Paris and across France have been ordered to protect Kurdish site and Turkish diplomatic institutions following the attack. Demonstrations took place in the surrounding neighborhoods as members of the Kurdish community protested the shooting and the Turkish government, which has opposed Kurdish nationalism. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Two spins emerging, and the establishment critical narrative is the first one coming from Middle East Eye. The French government isn't doing enough to protect the Kurdish community from the persecution and violence that follows them. Kurds should be able to live in peace and security, but complacently among authorities doesn't allow for this. This attack shows the extent to which racist far-right ideologies threaten the peace in France. And France 24 has crafted a pro-establishment narrative spin. While the attack is undoubtedly heinous, French authorities, who are doing everything they can to protect Kurdish sites, aren't at fault. Although it's clear that the suspect was targeting foreigners, it's not certain that he was targeting Kurds in particular. Rather than inciting further violence, officials should be left to conduct a thorough investigation. We continue our coverage of the Ukraine tragedy with Day 303 as the U.S. dismisses Putin's call to bring the war to an end. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Pravda, and Ukraine Forum. Speaking at a press conference at the Kremlin on Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin said his aim was to bring the war in Ukraine to a close, but this was flatly dismissed by U.S. officials. 
Putin said, quote, Our goal is not to spin the flywheel of military conflict, but, on the contrary, to end this war. We will strive for an end to this, and the sooner the better, of course. He continued with all armed conflicts and one way or another with some kind of negotiations on the diplomatic track. Sooner or later, any parties in a state of conflict sit down and make an agreement. The sooner this realization comes to those who oppose us, the better. We have never given up on this. In response, the White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said Putin has, quote, shown absolutely zero indication that he's willing to negotiate. He added, Quite the contrary. Everything he is doing on the ground and in the air bespeaks a man who wants to continue to visit violence upon the Ukrainian people. Echoing Kirby's statement, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also dismissed Putin's remarks. He said, fundamentally, right now, Russia has shown no interest in meaningful diplomacy, in meaningfully engaging, to bring this war to an end, he said. Meanwhile, according to a report in the Wall Street Journal citing European and Ukrainian diplomats, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his team are preparing to present a formula for peace in February 2023, on or around the one-year anniversary of the war. It's likely that any plan would demand high concessions from Moscow. In Donetsk, where fighting remained heaviest, Ukrainian officials said four civilians were killed and seven were injured in Russian attacks over the past day. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic said three civilians were killed and four were injured in Ukrainian attacks for the same time period. Further Russian attacks were recorded in the region of Kherson, where one civilian was killed and two more were injured, and in Kharkiv, where five civilians were reportedly injured. The regions of Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk were also struck without reports of civilian casualties. Eric, thank you for the update on Ukraine. We have a pro-Russia narrative, and it's provided by TASS. Russia understands that nearly all wars end at the negotiation table. The sooner that this point is reached, the better for all parties involved. And Al Jazeera is giving us an anti-Russian narrative for this story. Putin's call to bring an end to the war is insincere. If he wants the war to end, he can start by removing his forces from Ukraine. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 1% chance that Putin and Zelensky will meet to discuss the peaceful resolution of the Russia-Ukraine conflict before 2023. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And turning our attention to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the rebel group M23 has pledged to retreat from key positions. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Pan-African Dispatch, France 24, DNYUZ, and Al Jazeera. In a statement issued Friday, the M23 rebel group, which has seized swaths of territory in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, announced that it would withdraw from the town of Kibumba, a commercial hub of roughly one million people that the rebels took over in 2012. The Tutsi-led force, which emerged from inactivity in late 2021 and has since swept across the DRC's North Kivu province, has caused thousands of people to flee. Kibumba lies on the front line between M23 and Congolese troops on a critical highway. M23 said its decision to hand Kibumba over to East Africa nation's government was a goodwill gesture, aligned with recent peace talks that took place in Angola. The group also urged their opposition to, quote, grab this opportunity with both hands. The DRC has blamed neighboring Rwanda for supporting M23, 
accusations Kigali denies, though the U.S., France, other Western nations, and the U.N. agree with the DRC's perspective. Rwanda has been excluded from a regional peacekeeping operation, to which Kenya and Burundi have already sent peacekeeping forces. The recent withdrawal comes after peace talks between the DRC and Rwanda established a truce on November 23rd, a deal in which M23 was to lay down their weapons and withdraw from occupational territories, though they never did. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story. And two spins have been generated, beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from the East African. With an alleged history of backing the Rwandan genocide against Tutsis in 1994, France and its Western allies should refrain from blaming Rwanda for the current diplomatic and military crisis. Though the DRC, Rwanda, and M23 should work to honor the Luanda Peace Agreement, we also can't forget that M23 was never allowed to take part in those talks. Blaming the government of a neighboring state will do nothing to solve the problem in the DRC itself. And a pro-establishment narrative was written by the Star. The UN, the US, Belgium, and France have all investigated the crisis and found Rwanda to be backing the rebels. Peace is possible, but only if all sides, especially Kigali, live up to the promises they've made during talks. While France has acknowledged it failed to heed warnings of the 1994 Rwandan genocide and has since apologized, that doesn't mean Paris is lying about the current situation in the DRC. Turning our attention to Chile as they plan to open an embassy in Palestinian territories. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Times of Israel, Jerusalem Post, Al Jazeera, Palestine Chronicle, Mideast Monitor, and Reuters. Chile's left-wing president Gabriel Boric announced on Wednesday plans to open an embassy in the Palestinian territories, which would make Chile one of the few countries that have formal embassies in the West Bank. Speaking at a Christmas party with Palestinians in Santiago, Boric reportedly alleged that Israel has been illegally occupying Palestine and violating the rights and dignity of its people. On Thursday, Chile's foreign minister Antonia Urahola confirmed the plan which was commended by the Palestinian Foreign Ministry. Urahola stressed that no timeline is in place yet, and Chile continues to recognize both Israel and Palestine as legitimate states. The South American country, which opened a representative office to the Palestine Authority in 1998 and recognized Palestine as a state in 2011, supporting its membership in UNESCO, is estimated to have a Palestinian community of 300,000 which is the largest outside of the Middle East. Chilean Palestinians, who coexist with Chile's Jewish community of about 30,000 people, are mainly employed in the trade and textile industries and have been successfully involved in politics. Bilateral ties between Chile and Israel have been allegedly harmed as Boric postponed the credentials of Israel's new ambassador to Chile in September. This followed the killing of a Palestinian teenager by Israeli forces, amid increased tensions and violence on both sides this year. Thank you, Eric. We have a pro-Israel spin on this story, and it's provided by Times of Israel. This comes as no surprise. Far-left Boric is well known for his fiercely anti-Israel stance and has even openly praised the Palestinian resistance, which is a dog whistle for Palestinian terrorism. This is but his latest public and deliberate snubbing of Israel. Arab News is giving us a pro-Palestine spin. This is a bold move by Barik, which will give Palestinians the representation they deserve under international law. 
It's about time the West Bank and Gaza, which have been under Israeli occupation since 1967, are recognized as a sovereign Palestinian state. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion. There's a 44% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by 2070. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. Shell Oil will pay $15.9 million in a settlement for Nigeria oil spills. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, BBC News, The Business Recorder, and Africa News. Shell announced on Friday that it will pay 15 million euros, or $15.9 million, to Nigerian communities that were affected by multiple oil pipeline leaks in the Niger Delta. The settlement results from a Dutch court case brought by the environmental group Friends of the Earth last year. The court claimed that Shell's Nigerian subsidiary, SPDC, was responsible for oil spills and had to pay farmers for the damages. Shell and Friends of the Earth agreed on the sum after negotiations, but according to a joint statement, the settlement payment is given based on, quote, no admission of liability. Originally, the case was brought in 2008, and the spills occurred between 2004 and 2007. The money will benefit the Nigerian communities of Oruma, Goy, and Ikote Araudo. The deal also ensures installing a leak detection system on 20 pipeline segments. That work has been completed. Shell maintains that the spills were the result of a sabotage and has provided assurances that the site is now clean. Those are the facts, and two spins have been generated from this story. The establishment critical narrative is the first one coming from Al Jazeera. Oil spills have had devastating consequences for Nigerian communities, and Shell is responsible for most of them. For decades, Shell's negligence has disrupted people's livelihoods and brought about irreparable environmental damage. This is not the first time Shell has had to pay a fine or settlement, and most likely, not the last. And a pro-establishment narrative is written by This Day Live. Shell and other oil companies are putting in the work to invest in Nigeria and its communities. Shell is committed to Nigeria's development and is working to build major upstream projects and improve the current infrastructure already in Nigeria in a safe and sustainable way. In our next story, FTX's Bankman Freed has been released on a $250 million bond. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters and Guardian. After agreeing to be extradited from the Bahamas, Sam Brinkman Freed, co-founder and former CEO of crypto firm FTX, was released on a $250 million bond in his first U.S. court appearance in New York on Thursday. In order to secure the bail agreement, Bankman Freed, facing eight charges and 110 years of imprisonment, had to surrender his passport, agree to comply with house arrests at his parents' California home, and wear an ankle bracelet for electronic monitoring. He also had to agree to mental health and substance abuse treatment. Asked by Magistrate Judge Gabriel Gorenstein whether he understood his conditions of release, Bankman Freed said, Yes, I do. Those were Bank Freed's only words at the hearing. The proceedings came shortly after prosecutors in Manhattan secured guilty pleas from two of Bankman Freed's closest associates, former Alameda CEO Caroline Ellison and FTX co-founder Gary Wang. Both are believed to be cooperating with prosecutors. Prosecutor Nicholas Roots told the court on Thursday that evidence at trial would consist of thousands of pages of written communications from FTX employees, 
in addition to testimony from, quote, multiple cooperating witnesses. He alleged that Bankman-Fried carried out a fraud of epic proportions. Judge Gorenstein set the next court date for January 3, 2023, and said the trial will be presided over by U.S. District Judge Ronnie Abrams. Thank you, Eric. We have a couple of narratives on this story. Narrative A is provided by New Yorker. According to the U.S. government's account, Bankman-Fried's corruption was baked into FTX's processes from the very start of its operation. Whether he was dishonest, deluded, or both, the government needs to conduct the most thorough investigation and prosecution of this fraudulent crypto billionaire. Thank you, Adam. Narrative B coming from Slate. Bankman-Fried faces charges of campaign finance violations ranging up to tens of millions of dollars. These donations went to the highest level of leadership in both the Democratic and Republican parties, which begs the question, did these political elites know where their high-dollar donations were coming from? And what will happen to all that money? It's imperative to expand the investigation to the maximum extent. I think he's going to disappear. He's a billionaire. $250 million, less than a quarter of his, <laughs> of his, of his, of his wallet. Right. He's gone. They should yeah. never have let this guy out of prison. He could cut that monitor off and run. He's getting a fake passport made right now. Yeah. It's either that or go back and live in your parents' basement again. Talk about a boomerang, kid. Saw that coming. <laughs> Meta plans to settle a Cambridge Analytica case for $725 million. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, Politico, Fox News, and Business Insider. Facebook's parent company, Meta Platforms Incorporated, has agreed to a $725 million settlement in a class action lawsuit accusing the social media platform of allowing third parties, such as Cambridge Analytica, to access users' personal information. The law firm representing the plaintiffs stated the settlement, which didn't see Meta admit wrongdoing, was the largest recovery ever achieved in a data privacy class action and the most Facebook has ever paid in a class action resolution. Judges overseeing the case in the Northern District of California are still required to approve the settlement. The plaintiff's estimate is that the class size, the total number of people affected, is around 250 to 280 million. Representing all Facebook users in the U.S. between May 24, 2007 and December 22, 2022. Beginning in 2018, the lawsuit revealed that Facebook had allowed Cambridge Analytica, a British political consulting firm, to access the data of as many as 87 million users. The now out-of-business company worked for former President Trump during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Cambridge Analytica gathered personal information through an external app in 2015, with users taking a personality quiz that pulled data from their own profiles as well as their Facebook friends. Facebook was fined $5 billion in 2019 by the Federal Trade Commission over the scandal. This comes after Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg was previously called before Congress and questioned by lawmakers over the same issue. As the share of the settlement going to individual Facebook users will depend on the validity of each individual claim, plaintiffs' attorneys said 25%, around $181 million, will go toward covering legal fees. Thanks, Adam, for the facts of that story. Let's look at the spins. The first one is an establishment-critical narrative coming from Forbes. Data privacy issues are at the root of big tech's monopoly mess. 
With weak data privacy laws, companies are primarily concerned with aggregating as much data as possible, the world's most valuable asset. And we must regain the right to protect our data, untangling the powerful systems of terms of services and privacy policies that have given big tech near unlimited power. And a pro-establishment narrative provided by the Detroit News. It's important to not deprive technology companies of a vital innovation tool. As demands for better data privacy laws grow, we must consider that access to data can be a powerful source of competition and innovation that blanket laws could disrupt. Recommended algorithms based on data also suit the customer and their tastes. While people prize their data's privacy, we should ponder what the internet would be without such access. Eric, do you ever take those personality quizzes on Facebook? Uh, yes, and I fail them every time. Well, it seems like you should be getting money out of this if you've been <laughs> taking those personality quizzes. In our next story, ByteDance confirms TikTok accessed journalists' data. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Engadget, New York Times, Forbes, and Financial Times. ByteDance, TikTok's Chinese parent company, announced Thursday that the TikTok user data of two journalists had been improperly accessed and the employees involved had left the company. Those involved allegedly had accessed the journalists' data to determine if they had been in the same location as employees suspected of leaking confidential information. Of the four employees allegedly involved, two were in the U.S. and two were in China. ByteDance said the TikTok employees largely targeted Emily Baker White, who wrote for BuzzFeed before moving to Forbes, and Christina Criddle of the Financial Times, though it did not specify other impacted TikTok users. Forbes reported that two other members of its reporting team had been targeted. In a statement, ByteDance said the employees' actions were, quote, an egregious misuse of their authority and described the behavior as unacceptable. Some of the employees named as being involved were Chris Lepetak, the app's chief internal auditor, who led the team responsible for the breach, and China-based executive Song Yi, who Lepetak reported to and who reports directly to ByteDance CEO Rubo Liang. Lepetak was fired, and Song resigned. These revelations came as states across the U.S. have banned TikTok on state government-issued devices. The U.S. Senate also recently voted to ban the platform on federal devices. Eric, thank you. We have a narrative A on this story, and it's been provided by Guardian. It's becoming clear that TikTok is a threat to the U.S. national security. Though ByteDance initially denied the accusations, it eventually had to come clean as the topic attracted increasing media attention. Reporters have the right to not be spied on by tech companies especially companies that are close to the Chinese government. Thanks, Adam. Narrative B coming from ANI News. This incident was a privacy violation, but ByteDance has taken the appropriate steps to fix the issue. Although some are framing this incident as spying by TikTok, in reality, these actions were undertaken by rogue employees in an unsanctioned manner. ByteDance has disavowed the departed employees' actions and is implementing policies to prevent these types of breaches in the future. And our final story today is a study out of the United Kingdom about an antiviral drug called molnupiravir, which hastens COVID recovery. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Yahoo News, University of Oxford, and News Medical Life Sciences. 
A new UK study that tested 25,000 vaccinated COVID patients revealed that the antiviral drug molnupiravir, produced by Merrick Sharp and Dom, or MSD, reduced the recovery time from the disease. Molnupiravir is the first antiviral medication for COVID that can be taken in pill form and was approved by UK medicine regulators in November, with the nation purchasing 480,000 courses. Unlike previous studies, which were largely on unvaccinated patients, the latest analysis, conducted by University of Oxford researchers, involved vaccinated patients who were either healthy and over 50 or 18 to 50 with underlying conditions. The peer-reviewed study, called the Panoramic, showed that molnupiravir effectively reduced viral load and hastened recovery by roughly four days. However, the drug wasn't shown to reduce hospitalizations or deaths. In contrast to prior tests that saw it reduce hospitalization by 30% in unvaccinated patients. Professor Richard Hobbs, head of Oxford Primary Care and co-trial lead, stressed that although the trial did show success, the drug only provides symptomatic relief and that the COVID vaccine still plays a vital role in reducing death and hospitalization. Panoramics results were published by the Lancet Journal. The authors, echoing Hobbes, highlighted the value of the study but maintained that the drug's benefits must be weighed against its cost, which is estimated to be several hundred pounds for a five-day treatment. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. As we take a look at the spins, beginning with Narrative A coming from Trial Site News. The panoramic study definitively shows that molnupiravir and similar antiviral drugs are essentially useless and shouldn't be approved by health regulators. While it undeniably has some benefits, they're overwhelmingly outweighed by the drug's cost. During a pandemic that has taken millions of lives across the globe, governments can't afford to waste money and resources on drugs that don't fully work. And our final narrative spin is provided by Jaywatch. While the panoramic study didn't reveal molnupiravir to be a magic cure to end the pandemic, its findings show that the drug has many benefits. COVID hospitalizations are already very low, at 0.8%, so the detractors are objecting a very small subset of patients. On the positive side, speeding up COVID recovery is a massive success for the vast majority of patients, and we should be happy that Maldapiravir does just that. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, December 24th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Uh-huh.